and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Percy, and I'm here with Nick Orvis. Hello. And Todd Backus. Hey, hey. Uh, to discuss dramatic tension and dramatic structure in role-playing games. The alternate title for this episode is uh, Dramatic Tension and Game Mechanics, or Why It's Okay That the Final Battle of Our Campaign Devolved Into No One Hitting Anyone or Anything, uh, also Dramatic Structure and the Male Orgasm. Um, so to sort of recap what happened at the at the conclusion of our campaign, um, We've talked before about how Dungeons and Dragons tends to structure stories in sort of a, a typical building up to a climax and then a denouement um, or sort of this story of conquest leading up to one final climactic battle. Um, and in our final climactic battle, uh, our, our monster was incapacitated. And for some reason, no one's dice were cooperating and none of our none of our heroes were able to hit the monster for as if their lives depended on it which at least three hours (laughs) it was it was truly truly distressing um given that we would love for our our podcast to be fun to listen to and interesting (laughs) narratively but uh, i think that's actually really interesting um in terms of what the d20 mechanic and the randomness of rolling dice to resolve conflict does in light of this is also a storytelling medium um so that's sort of a recap of of what happened at the at the end of our campaign um yeah yeah well what i think is interesting about us as theater artists doing this project to begin with is that uh collaborative role playing in tabletop rpgs but also this collaborative storytelling with mechanics that determine what actually happens versus what we want to happen um, means that dramatic structure is in some ways kind of thrown out the window. Like, yeah, it's wonderful that Hamlet gets to have this like incredible, emotionally fraught battle with Laertes and uh, shit, the name of the king. Claudius. Uh, Claudius. Claudius. I wanted to call him Cologne. Whatever. What kind of it's dramaturg fine. are you? <laughs> um, but like, it's wonderful that they get to have this climactic battle um, where we feel that like good and evil and reason and logic are like coming together for this final decisive thing. And if on stage it wound up being like Laertes and Hamlet just like missing each other with rapiers for 20 minutes, we'd all hate it. Like, this would all be very upsetting in terms of, like, drama. It would not be good. Um, But because of the D20 mechanic in Dungeons & Dragons, like, sometimes that's how things happen. Real life is random and not ideal. And so, like, how do we navigate that? But also, how do we kind of fold that into um, the narrative in a way that can sometimes be exciting and sometimes be not exciting. A brief tangent I want to take us on before we really dive into this is sort of the idea, because I think what you said about how things work in real life is interesting in terms of when you think about theater, because theater, for all of the realism that we tend to produce and all of the ways that plays attempt to represent slices of real life, a lot of improbable things still happen and things are the ideal versions of themselves not necessarily in a like everything works out the way that we wanted it to way, but just 
events line up in such a way that exactly what the playwright is trying to do happens, which is not not real at all. So I think that's an interesting I just think it's an interesting word to describe it. Yeah, that's my that's my tangent about realism in the American (laughs) theater. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a a dramatic arc is inherently um, like a very artificial way for events to happen. Reality is a lot messier than that. And when you're letting any random mechanic change the course of your narrative, all you can do is sort of steer things in a general direction. You know, you can give the players the tools they need to have their climactic throwdown with the villain and hopefully emerge victorious by the skin of their teeth. But because of that randomness, it might be that the villain, you know, this might be the version of Hamlet where it's Hamlet and Laertes starts dueling and Hamlet gets, you know, a lucky lunge and stabs Laertes through the heart. And then Claudius is like, what? What happened? And then Hamlet just stabs him, too. And it's like. Okay, and they all roll three three (laughs) successive failed death saving throws, and then um, I think an interesting element of this too is the is like the idea of immersion. Um, Because when you're watching a play, you are suspending disbelief and you're investing fully, and this narrative is happening in front of me, and nothing is pulling me out of it, ideally. Um, But when you're in a role playing game, you are constantly interrupting the storytelling with, "Okay, roll to hit." okay, that hits now roll your damage. Okay. How much of that is bludgeoning damage and how much of that is fire damage? Like that you're interrupting constantly with these reminders of we're playing a game with mechanics. So in a way you're sort of, it it would be like trying to watch a play where they're constantly breaking the fourth wall, which I think does not always hinder investment in it, but I'm emotionally investing a little bit less in a story when I'm constantly being reminded, Oh, okay, this is me playing a game or this is me. Um, telling a story with other people or you know this is this isn't real oh that's interesting because see to me i was going to say there is some you know i emotionally invest in plays i watch absolutely but i think there's a difference when in a role-playing game generally it's participatory in a way that plays are usually not and so there's i think a different quality of investment where to some extent although it is a game this is happening to me you know, mm-hmm. personally. We've talked before on the podcast about the like different levels of kind of different layers of player and character. And when I'm rolling dice and I can't roll above an eight on a 20 sided die for 20 minutes, like that's a thing that's happening to me, Nick, a person <laughs> mm-hmm. in a way that's not when I'm watching Hamlet, you know, stab Polonius. Spoilers. I guess that's fair. I guess. Yeah, there is a there is a level, uh, there is a degree of like nothing feels worse than going to land the the final blow on the big bad evil guy, and all you roll a nat one, especially when there are many mechanics baked into D anD D where nat ones are are particularly bad. But yeah, there is there is something really exciting about declaring I'm going to do this outlandish thing and rolling a natural twenty as though the die have you know told you that what you're doing is the right thing to do. Um, that is sort of the, the flip of it is you are investing in it as like you, a person are doing this thing, even if it is not actually you who is fighting the, the evil beast from the far realm. I would say, I think, um, as a player, something that I get a lot of enjoyment out of, um, is finding ways to make my dice rolls make narrative sense. 
um, because it is this random thing that determines how successful or not successful I am at doing a thing. I like to fold that into like, okay, I tried to do something really basic and did it terribly. And so what are the narrative reasons that I chose to do that? Which I think for me heightens my engagement, but also um, tries to explain away in in the narrative world building that we're doing to say, you know, it's not just the dice. There's, there's something happening with Sarah, my character, um, at this moment that is making this happen and that's why x or y or z like it's not that she's just like flailing with her sword but actually something caught her eye or she's terrified of chimeras and i the player didn't know that until this moment but that's why she's doing so terribly in this particular encounter is she's terrified and so Trying to take those things that the the system mechanically tells us is either a raw success or a raw failure and turn it into narrative is something that intrigues me. I think that's a great example of something that I, I think of as a uh, not frequently enough used technique in D&D, which is the like post hoc justification, because I do think it opens so many more storytelling possibilities. A lot of player's first instinct is to say i'm going to do this and describe it and then roll the die which can then become tricky if what you described was awesome and seems like it should work and you roll terribly but if you just say okay i'm going to try to blow like the simple straightforward version roll the die and then like you just said you can figure out what that means in this moment for this character and i think that's a useful tool for gems too and maybe nicely help solve the thing of uh you know if the fighter there's a big rock in the way and your big burly fighter is like i'll just shove the rock out of the way and then they roll a two maybe what that tells you is that the rock is super heavy which also helpfully gives a reason for the wizard not to try when with you know the game mechanics it's possible for the fighter to be like i'm gonna shove the rock and fail and then the wizard's like i'm gonna try too for fun and with a you know they happen to roll a 20 and it's like oh well that technically works Mm -hmm. even though it doesn't make much sense that you can do that and she can't yeah i think that is a tricky thing to do as a gm because on one hand like i want to give everybody a chance to do the thing but also it sort of breaks the game if you just let everybody try to do a thing until somebody happens to roll what they needed right, to succeed. Exactly. Like I think D and D is so much more a game of like this is gonna make it sound like the least fun thing in the whole world, but it's a game of creative problem solving. Um it forces you to turn failure into something that's dramatically interesting in the sense of like creating tension and, and raising the stakes. Like if you are trying to open a door and for some reason you simply just cannot get it open. That is not only funny, but also like, you know, it creates this like anticipate, well, what's behind the door? Like this must be very important if I can't get through. Um, And it opens the door for you as a GM, even if it was like a locked broom closet, maybe now you can imagine like there's a lot of treasure in there, you know, make it Mm -hmm. more of a payoff for the players. Like I think that is, yeah, really important is letting the dice rolls influence the narrative because it is the fundamental mechanic of the game. Mm-hmm. 
I will say, um, GMing a game that is very heisty right now with a rogue who wants to lockpick everything, even if the dice don't always agree with him. Um, a thing that I've started doing is so instead of just being able to be like, okay, you can try again and again and again, is that like death saves, he has three attempts to do it. And if he fails three times, it's like, cool, you broke the lock. Mm-hmm. It does not turn anymore. And that wow. will have consequences outside of the like you cannot get in there, but also people will notice that the lock is broken now. Um, and like how that changes the narrative versus like, dude, you did that. And it was like you had a copy of the key on your person. That's how smooth you just were. And no one will ever know that you were in here. Um, and I think that that allows for uh, interesting narratives to come out of this very seemingly random and arbitrary sort of a system. Uh, uh, Apocalypse World has a dice pool mechanic, right? No. Am I making up? No, it's all just moves and counter moves. It's two. It's two. You roll two d six. Um, if you if your number lands within certain ranges, it's a failure, big success, or complete success. Well, I would say, and this is a, a system that I would love for us to explore at some point. Um, masks, which is powered by the apocalypse, uh, you play as young superheroes or supervillains, depending like depending on how you're playing. Um, and as super-powered people, you always succeed at the feats that you attempt, but the difference in your dice rolls are not like, can you lift the car or can you not? It's like, do you break the car when you lift it? Do you hurl it into a building? Or do you like gingerly like lift it up and pull the lady out from underneath it? And that ends up being more like narrative consequences rather than literal consequences, which I find really interesting. And I'm like really, really eager to explore some of these uh, Powered by the Apocalypse systems because their their focus is in some way is more on narrative than on wargaming. Well, so what I will say is that I think the the word that I would use to describe Powered by the Apocalypse games is actually that they are very cinematic. Um, mm. Everything is happening at the same time and you resolve it all at once. Or you, you resolve it piece by piece, but everything everything is happening and influencing each other at the same time. And there are shades to what is able to happen as opposed to a black and white. You do this or you don't. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily call the G20 system like theatrical because I think very often cinematic and theatrical are the opposites. But um, I, I think... The core, the core idea that is that powered by the apocalypse games are built very specifically to fun- like to function as narrative structures, whereas the D20 system is not. The D20 system is very explicitly we are simulating the randomness of everyday life in order to determine success or failure. But there are different ways of determining of like simulating that. And one thing I was going to say that I just find interesting and hopefully we'll get to this in some like future season um there are also games uh that use dice pool mechanics which means that you get a much more kind of nuanced measure of competence because with a d20 you have equal odds of rolling a one or rolling a 20 in a game like say Shadowrun, where the better you are at a skill the more dice you roll you're 
range of possible outcomes is going to bend up and up and up into a nice smooth bell curve because the more dice you're rolling the more it's going to the, those low and high numbers are going to average out so if you're rolling 76 which is a lot of six-sided dice uh, then you're going to end up with something that's much closer to the average of those rolls much more consistently so you can better mimic the idea of like okay i have the basics of this down and it's extremely rare for me to you know mess up swinging my sword or whatever because that is the thing i do in a way that in D and any d20 game you're always going to have exactly the same odds of doing like amazing or terrible because that's the nature of rolling one die to determine everything mm-hmm Although I think the advantage and disadvantage system does help with this. Um, sure. I, well, and I your skill a- modifiers. I mean, it doesn't get you out of like crit fails and crit successes, but that's kind of the like your competence in your sorting ability is like, yeah, a, a 12 is as good as if you had no competence and you rolled a 17. Well, and there's also, for example, um, there's a there's a rogue ability that you get, I think, around like level 10 that essentially says um, you can't your whatever you roll, it can't be below a 10 um, plus your ability modifier in a given skill. Like when you're trying to pick a lock, you can never roll below a 10. Um, and there are spells that do the same thing. Like there's a spell called glibness, which is a bard spell, which essentially while it's active, um, you can treat any roll as though you rolled a 15. Um yeah, like that. There's, I think, mechanics in place that help uh, make that a little bit more, um, a little bit less random. Like there is, there is a, there is a floor, at the very least, um, that you can't go beneath. Although I certainly agree that like sometimes it is a little bit ridiculous that you are not able to succeed at a thing that you by all rights should be very good at, considering at later levels of Dungeons and Dragons you are functionally like superheroes. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, have you two experienced any... We've talked about some of the ways that, like, dramatic tension, as it's classically constructed, can fall apart in D&D because of those, like, low rolls. Have you two ever felt as though it is hard to maintain dramatic tension with pl- when players are just, like, steamrolling every obstacle you put in their way? Is that an experience um, you've had? One time... I ran The Tomb of Horrors, which if you are unfamiliar, it is a um, notoriously, incredibly difficult dungeon. I ran it once for some friends and then I ran it a second time. The second time I ran it, I had a player who was a monk who took the dungeon delver feat, which gives you advantage on identifying secret doors. It makes it very difficult for you to take damage if you fall into it. Like it just circumvented almost every tool that I had at my disposal. And that's not quite the same thing in terms of like high dice rolls, but there are certain mechanics of D&D that make it incredibly difficult to maintain tension because everything becomes really, really easy. Like if you are a stout halfling and you have resistance to poison or you are a monk who is immune to poison or a paladin or whatever, and you're going through a swamp or you're encountering mosquitoes that could give you malaria, but all of your players are immune to disease. That's not very interesting. And, this, and the stakes that you had originally built in and the danger you had originally built in is uh, totally, totally gone. Yeah. The campaign that I'm playing in, um, we've had a different GM for each arc. Well, in the first arc, I took a feat 
um, that is Eyes of the Runekeeper, and it allows me to read any language and comprehend it. I might not be able to speak it, but I can read it. And our new GM took over, and we were going to this island, and there were these ruins below the cities that had this like ancient text that nobody knew. And I was like, oh, I can read that, right? And he was like, what? Like, no, it's not a language. And I'm like, but I can read everything that's written, and it was written in some language. And he's like, yes. Um, And so I just like circumvented all of the puzzles because all of the puzzles dealt with like us not being able to know these rules that were just written on the wall that are like, hey, don't forget there's an invisible floor here. Um, (laughs) Which was like kind of a bummer in terms of narrative because it wasn't as dramatic or um, the danger was very much removed because I had a like, oh, I understand what all of these things are. Cool. As as a GM, I find that um, there's definitely times where, you know, I'm I want to tell a story in a certain way and then dice rolls end up going in a very different way, uh, which is sometimes hard. Like I, I wanted the villain to like do a thing and be very dramatic and then escape in a flash. And that was going to be like very exciting and harrowing and blah, blah, blah. And then you mean exactly just, like, what I tried to do <laughs> in the in, yeah, Bart, yeah. in Bart's lab. Yeah. Every GM tries to do it at least once. Um, <laughs> And one of my one of my players incapacitated that like knocked them to the ground and made them lose concentration. And um, according to the rules, it was like, cool. Yeah, I guess none of that happens. That was the plan. And that's (laughs) not going to happen now because that breaks the shared fiction that we have. And so trying to find ways um, to dramatically uh, make that still be satisfying and sometimes there's a question of like what serves the narrative versus what serves the dice. Yeah, I think beyond the dice also just the mechanics. Like I'm a big fan of the rule of cool. Like I will almost always do the thing that is more exciting and makes the players happy versus um doing the thing that is technically right. For example, um in my last campaign I had a druid who loved to turn into a crocodile and he would request that the wizard cast enlarge on him. And rather than just giving him the benefits of enlarge, I let him turn into a giant crocodile, which is a pretty OP creature because it was cool. Um, I yeah, there's a player in my group who loves to do really off the wall shit. But it's really fun. And while it's sometimes hard to figure out how to work the mechanics around that, and sometimes he completely fails on the dice and it just doesn't work, um, that is what makes the game more exciting. So Something that I think we as dramaturgs talk about in theater all the time is like, does does the arc of the narrative have to be this like shape? Um, yeah. And does it have to be that for every person? It doesn't. Um, Yes, I yeah, I would I would say my take it does not, um, and that but that applies both on a kind of story level like maybe your D and D adventure doesn't have to have that like rising action and climax and denouement etc., but also thinking about it as the story of a group, you know I feel like one of the classic examples is you and th- and this is this depends on the group and your experience level and so on, but you know. One of the classic examples is the first level character that you've rolled up and are excited to play and you have the whole their whole like future mapped up in your head 
and then in like the second session they die because you know the dice are terrible and then they die um and obviously when you've like invested a lot in that character that is like that's that's really tough that sucks but also you know in a if you kind of pivot your brain to the outside and are imagining the narrative of this like party what a potentially cool dramatic moment you know like there's not that many films we can think of where it's like where there's the like false uh setup of here's our group of people who are going on the quest oh but on day two one of them was brutally murdered by a plant (laughs) (laughs) and yeah but you know but that could provide interesting fodder to the rest of the narrative and then like how how does that change the relationships between the rest of the party and then how do these people who had this experience deal with your new character Who's like, hello, strange adventurers. I would like to be your friend. And it's like, well, we're still getting over the death of our friend, Joe, the fighter who was murdered by a sentient plant. Oh, Joe. Um, that kind of that reminds me of a thing that I think is is cool about D&D is that it scales as you level. It scales sort of the stakes of your interactions with the world. Um, it sort of scales your leveling in terms of like from levels one to five, you can deal with threats that are scary to a small town or a village. And then as you level up threats to a city or threats to a kingdom or threats to the entire realm or threats to the material plane. Um, and I think that that is a useful tool because um, as a dungeon master, it can be hard to remember that it needs to be challenging, but not so hard that it's not fun. You know, there's nothing fun about a party who's level three entering the cave of an adult red dragon and immediately getting TPK'd by its fire breath um, because no level three character can handle like 10 D six worth of damage. Um, For those of you not super D and D or RPG savvy, a TPK is a total party kill. Thank you. Yes. But I think that that, I think that that is helpful. And I think your point about the evolution of a, of a party is, is interesting and helpful because I think not only do you have the story of that specific group, but you also do have those individual arcs of each character. Um, and I know not every person comes into an RPG with like my character's goal is to get reunited with her family, but some characters might, and that might be an interesting thing to navigate. Like, okay, I, I did what my character wanted to do. Why do I stay with the party or do I leave the party and make a new character? And then we have this new start. Uh, there, there was a point where I had a hard time as a player um, rationalizing why my character was still working with the party. Um, it just like, she didn't understand what the stakes were. She didn't understand how they applied to her. Um, but I knew that if she was just contrarian about it, it would not be useful to the party. And so I worked with the GM to just write up a new character that she accidentally summoned. And to play as that person instead of her, uh, because I knew based on the character, like these stakes are really hard for her and she doesn't see how this helps her towards the goals that she has set up. And mm-hmm. so as the player performer, I'm having trouble figuring out, like, what do I do and how can I make a character that is like useful for this situation um, that does the fun thing of playing the game while also reconciling the like narrative 
that is f- good for the party. Yeah. I want to pivot back to thinking about the randomness of the D20 system and sort of examine the flip side of that. Um, this is me officially owning up in our campaign. I did fudge some dice rolls um, and I did fudge, like, you know, I, as a DM, made some very specific choices, not just in terms of dice rolls, but just in general that were intended to keep the party going. Um, half because I felt like this is going to get really boring, but also because it's, it seemed like it was about to stop being fun for the people who were playing because there is nothing worse than struggling with a puzzle or a riddle and not being able to figure it out. Um, even though I thought I gave a very good hint early on and you all just got really angry at the mouse. Um, but I think that's a, I think that is a tool that should be used sparingly, but I think it is a tool that's at the disposal of the dungeon master is being able to like, you're behind a screen. Nobody can see what you're doing. sometimes even though the monster technically has four hit points left, the really cool acrobatic maneuver that the fighter did to plunge a sword into its back almost killed it might as well just say that it killed it you know like that is ultimately ultimately in that case you have to make a judgment call about am i adhering to the letter of the game or am i doing what is fun and cool one thing i have done in the interests of kind of dramatic tension because because some people do feel like very strongly about their, the deaths of their characters um and i i don't think that is wrong um but one thing, an experiment I did with one group that I've not yet repeated, but I think I would like to, is at the beginning of the game, I had everyone pass me a note folded up with like whether they were okay with their character dying. Um, Wild. I have played in games where it's like it, it becomes clear at some point, okay, the GM just doesn't want to kill any characters. Which is fine, and like that can be perfectly fun, but it, it does remove an element of the like feeling of risk. Yeah. Um, and what I realized I could do with that was like, okay, nobody here knows now whether anybody, like when they're f- how much danger their friends are in, or like how much plot armor their friends have, for example. So I could pull my punches a little bit with the people who are like i'm extremely attached to this character will be very upset if they die um but even if i was pulling a punch slightly on that character the others didn't know that i also made it very clear i was like if you get to a high enough level in dungeons and dragons death becomes more of a speed bump than a you know end point and at that point all bets are probably like if you can be easily brought back from the dead it doesn't count as killing you I mean, one of my actually one of my favorite house rules um, is either I will use Matt Mercer's resurrection rules, which require essentially a skill challenge to bring someone back from the dead using a spell. Or more often, I will just not allow resurrection spells because I think I think it's less fun if the this thing that should be incredibly high stakes is just kind of an an obstacle. Yeah. yeah, like that. that is my my personal preference to maintain some sense of stakes and tension. Although I am also the kind of GM who will open almost every game with a caveat to my players that like there will be encounters that will absolutely kill you and that you should not try to fight to their completion. Like there are things that you should run away from. I won't tell you what they are, but, you know, don't don't assume that you have plot armor. Um, yeah. Like there are there are things here where fighting is not is not the answer. Um, I mean, in the in the last campaign I was working on, 
at the conclusion of it, we're like at the big climactic battle where we're on pirate ships, we're fighting things, and uh, my character died. Like she straight up like got hit in the face, dropped, uh, did a death save, popped back up, fought someone, got hit again, hit the floor again. And then like I failed two death saves and someone failed a medicine check. Oh, um, no. And the whole party was aghast. Um, and it was like, oh, God. And I was like, this is the narrative. This is what we're doing. Sarah just died. We'll figure out if we can do something about that later. <laughs> and like right now I'm GMing um, and Sarah's death is an important facet of the narrative that like they're trying to find a way to resurrect her, but it's going to take them an entire arc to maybe successfully do that. And so like there are stakes and there are consequences to the things that we do. And it's not just like we're going to swing some swords and kill some things because that's how the game works. It's that like, yeah, sometimes it doesn't work that way. Sometimes it works in other ways. And like, how do we make interesting narrative out of that? I think part of that is speaking to like failure and how much space you create for failure in the game, because that's one of the narratives that are presented to us, like novels, plays, movies tend to be constructed in this kind of clockwork way where, you know, a failure at any key moment would send like the whole rest of the narrative kind of tumbling down. I think one of the fun things about the open endedness of tabletop role playing games is like, how do we live with the possibility of failure and like find ways to keep a narrative spinning in a way that is dramatically interesting and like giving the party the chance to legitimately fail. And I mean, it's such an important, it's such an important part of theater practice that like I really have come to to value that in all in all facets. Like I think we talk about like in in, in the theater industry, we talk about how important it is to fail and how much we can learn from failure and how important it is to risk. And I think that is a valuable thing to apply also to tabletop games. Um like there is nothing less interesting than a party entering a dungeon and very fastidiously making investigation checks on every foot of wall. And yeah, like, you know, it at a certain point, it's also just more dramatically interesting to risk. It's more dramatically interesting to try and open the door without checking it for traps, because that's what your character would do. Earlier today, I was playing D&D with my friends and I my character is a is a drunkard like very brash broy monk and he was just he wouldn't check a door for traps he's he wouldn't think to do that he would just go in and he took like 30 points of damage from all of the readied actions on the other side of the door but that's that's what it is and the nice thing about playing a game in which you are not at risk of any physical danger is that you are able to take those risks and you are able to risk failure in a way that is interesting dramatically and uh, creates tension and has stakes and all of that. Now that we've finished our 5e campaign of Mice and Monsters, we'll have a debrief with the playwright and the players on August 5th. Then the following week, Nick, Percy, and I will have a conversation about staging tabletop games in the theater and why it happens a bit less often than you might think. Then on August 19th, we'll give you a background on the mechanics of our next system, Apocalypse World, before we dive into our next campaign. <laughs> 
Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds.